As we come to Mark chapter 14 this morning, last week we ended with Jesus making his way from the upper room, walking across the city of Jerusalem, down and through the valley of Kidron. And then as he made his way through that Kidron Valley, he came up to the other side on the Mount of Olives, where there was a garden, a garden called Gethsemane. So let's read, beginning at verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The Garden of Gethsemane was a place just east of the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem. Across the ravine of the Valley of Kidron, down across the brook Kidron, and on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. It's surrounded by ancient olive trees. In fact, the name Gethsemane means olive press. It's a place where olives were crushed for their oil. In the ancient world, olive oil was a very valued commodity. They used it for a lot of things from cooking and meal preparation to fuel for both stoves and lamps. It was a very important commodity. And so in Gethsemane was a place where they took the olives and they pressed them and crushed them to get the oil out. Doesn't surprise us that Jesus would pick this place with this very appropriate name, this garden of crushing, this garden of pressing, to be the place where he struggled in prayer before God the Father on the night before he was betrayed and before he went to the cross. If there's any doubt in your mind how this affected Jesus, Look carefully at the end of verse 33 where it says that he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. You don't often hear words like that applied to Jesus. He usually seems to be totally at peace, totally calm. Think about all the instances where the scribes and the Pharisees and those antagonistic enemies of Jesus would come and try to shake him up and upset him. Do you ever think he got distressed or upset at those times? No, you you can almost see the face of Jesus, so calm, so serene. All his enemies would try to throw everything they could at him, but it wouldn't bother him at all. But now, on this night with a full moon, and we know it was the full moon because it was right around Passover, in the midst of this olive tree orchard, Jesus is there with his disciples, set aside with time to pray. And it says there in verse 33 that he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Now look at verse 34. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. You know, we don't read many times in the Bible where Jesus asked his disciples to do something for him. We don't read in the Bible Jesus saying to the disciples, now go and get me some food to eat. 
or, or go find me a place to lay down and, and take a rest, or do this for me, or do that for me. It's not Jesus' pattern to ask the disciples to help him for his own sake. But here he does. He says, man, I feel like I'm being crushed. I feel like I'm being pressed down, just like the olives are pressed here in this garden. Uh, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. So won't you stay here and watch with me? I need some companionship at this critical hour. I need somebody to watch with me. Now, we sort of scratch our heads and we say, Jesus must have been really going through something for him to approach his disciples and for him to have this state in his heart. What was it that troubled Jesus so much? And with the easy answer in our hearts to say, well, he's going to go to the cross the next day. You think about a prisoner sitting on death row, and he knows on the very next day he's going to be executed. He can't sleep that night, can he? He's anxious. He's pacing around his cell. He's walking back and forth. He's a nervous wreck. He knows he's going to face death the very next day. And how much worse it would be if he knew that the death he would face would be an incredibly painful, torturous death. Not some uh, injection that they put in his arm that, that kills him and sort of just sends him off to sleep and then he's dead. No, nothing like that. Not even anything as merciful as a gas chamber where you die in a few minutes. No, if you were going to face the slow, agonizing death of a cross the very next day, well, no wonder you'd be troubled. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that that wasn't what really troubled Jesus. Oh, I'm sure it was there somewhere in his mind. But what troubled Jesus far more than the thought of receiving the physical pain and the physical torture the next day was knowing what he would undergo spiritually. As he was there in that garden Gethsemane, that place where olives were pressed and crushed, He knew that his soul was going to be crushed before God. And this is what Jesus meant when he spoke to the Father about the cup. Look at it there in verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You see this cup. Now, please, don't think that there was a a literal goblet in front of Jesus as he was kneeling down before a rock or laying down just flat on the ground before God. Don't think that there was a literal cup or a fancy goblet in front of him and he was tempted whether or not he would drink it or whether he would fulfill it. No, the cup picture that he uses, it's a picture from the Old Testament. You see, several times in the Old Testament, the prophets speak of God's judgment being delivered to man in a cup. And saying, God saying, look, here's my judgment. Here's the wrath that you deserve. It's mixed up in this cup and you have to drink it now. You're under the judgment of God. You've sinned. And you're a guilty sinner before me, and guilty sinners deserve the judgment of God. And so here's a cup full of the judgment of God. Here, now it's your turn to drink it. Friends, if there's anything I could tell you to do this morning, I want you to picture right now God extending a cup towards you. Not towards your husband or wife. Not towards your friend or neighbor. Towards you, he's extending that cup. And that cup is the cup of judgment that you deserve. You deserve it. I don't have to persuade you that you've sinned against God. You know it. I know it. We all know it. 
And so we deserve punishment from God. And there he's stretching out the cup. And he's saying to you, this cup is for you. This is the judgment you deserve. But now Jesus comes alongside of you. And he says, Father, I'm going to take that cup. And I'll drink it so that they don't have to. That's what he did for you. Now, if you could take all the judgment, all the guilt, all the wrath that every human being who has ever walked this earth has ever deserved, and if you could distill it and concentrate it and pour it into one cup, that'd be a pretty ugly cup, don't you think? You see, not just the judgment you deserve and you deserve and I deserve, all of us together in the room, that would be a bad enough cup. But how about everybody, all of humanity? You put it into one cup. You said, drink this. No wonder Jesus asked if that cup might pass from him. And no wonder that his soul, look at verse 34. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. I need some help, guys. I need some companionship. I've got to determine right now in my mind whether I'm going to go through with this. Because if I'm going to turn back, now's the time. If I'm going to walk over the Mount of Olives and escape to the Judean wilderness and make a run for it, now's the time. If I'm going to turn my back on the destiny that I've known that was mine ever since I could understand it, now's the time for me to turn my back on it. But I need to pray and sort this out before my Father right now. So Jesus got on his knees before God, his Father, and he prayed. If it's possible. What did he mean when he said, if it's possible? Simply what he meant was, God, if there is any other way to accomplish the salvation of man other than me standing in the place of guilty sinners, other than me being treated as if I were a sinner, even though I'm not, if there's any other way to do it, let's do it that way. But there was no other way. There was no other way for man to be saved other than Jesus taking the place of guilty sinners and taking the cup that you and I deserve to drink. He didn't deserve it at all. You know what would be in the cup that Jesus deserved to drink? Nothing. Not a drop. Not one single drop of the judgment of God. His cup was empty. But he filled it up with the concentrated mixture of everything that every person has ever deserved. And that cup stood in front of Jesus. And he struggled with whether or not he would follow through and carry it. But then he asked God, if there's any other way, let's do it that other way. But the answer from heaven was silent. Because there was no other way. So Jesus says in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. First of all, I want you to notice that relationship wasn't broken. Abba, Father, that means daddy. Daddy, Father, I come to you. That warm term of endearment that just a little child would use. And speaking to his father, that's how Jesus spoke to God, his father, at this time in the garden. The other thing, Jesus was resigned to do the will of God, not what I will, but what you will. Please, don't don't think that there was a a competition of wills, that Jesus was, was trying to get out from doing something. No, he just shrank back from the horror that he would face, and he wanted to make sure that there was no other way to accomplish the salvation of man other than what he would face. See, my friends, what I want you to understand, and understand this very plainly, 
is that what Jesus did on the cross, just a few hours from this time that we're reading about his struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane, what he did in the cross really began here in the Garden of Gethsemane. If he would have failed here, he would have failed at the cross. What I want you to see is that what Jesus accomplished by his struggle in the garden resulted in our redemption and in our salvation. I'm going to say it again. What Jesus accomplished in his struggle in the garden, it resulted in our redemption and our salvation. And so if you've received that, if you've come before God and say, I want to receive your salvation. I want to receive what Jesus did on my behalf. I want to receive it that he drank the cup, not I. You need to thank God for what Jesus accomplished in the Garden of Gethsemane. If he would have failed there, he would have failed at the cross. Friends, you see how staggering it is. This struggle at Gethsemane, this place of crushing, it has an important place in fulfilling God's plan of redemption. If Jesus failed here, he would have failed at the cross. His success here made the victory at the cross possible. So he says, Lord, let's go through with it. Let's encounter this right now. Now, there was the struggle Jesus faced, and we've just read about that. It's holy ground that we've been walking on, this this incredible, intense, emotional struggle that Jesus went through in prayer before God the Father, struggling with these eternal issues. That's what Jesus faced. The disciples also faced a battle in the Garden of Gethsemane. They faced the battle of the Sandman. You're going to see in verse 37. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. as, As we read that, we're almost overwhelmed at the compassion of Jesus. What would have we been likely to do if we would have come back in the same situation as Jesus? We would have come back and saw the sleeping disciples... And, and violently woken them awake and said, don't you care about me? I'm the one going through this. And for once, I ask you guys for some personal help. I've been pouring out my life for you for three years. And now at this critical moment, I'm looking for a little something in return. And what do I get? You guys are sacking out. You can't even stay awake with me for a few hours. What's going on here? But I want you to see that Jesus is concerned, even though he is concerned for himself, the the, the far greater concern that he has is for them. He says, Simon, are you sleeping? That must have caught Peter. You see, Peter's name by birth was Simon. And Simon was a fine name. But it sort of became attached to who Peter was before the Lord really got a hold of him. A man who is capable of incredible highs and then incredible lows. It's the roller coaster guy, the up and down Simon. And so Jesus meets Simon and he says, you know what I'm going to do in your life? I'm going to do a work in your life and I'm going to make you Peter. Now, Peter means rock, not roller coaster Simon, rock Peter. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus comes and says to this man to wake him up, he says, Simon, It must have rung in Peter's ears. He goes, hey, he hasn't called me that for a while. 
You know, usually he's calling me Peter. But he should have got through to his mind that right now it was far more appropriate to call him Simon. And he says, Simon, verse 37, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Guys, you're going to face a struggle. You're going to face a crisis tonight. And unless you watch and pray, you will not be prepared to face the struggle that's going to come against you. So watch and pray. Please, what I want you to see. And this is a very important point, is that the disciples failed to watch and pray with Jesus. We're all clear on that. That's not mysterious to us. But what I want you to see is the link. Jesus succeeded in watching and praying, and he fulfilled the crisis that he faced at the cross. The disciples were going to face a crisis, and their crisis was whether or not they were willing to be identified with Jesus. Because people were going to come along and say, hey, aren't you a friend of Jesus? Aren't you an associate with him? And they would have the choice either to stick up for Jesus or to abandon him. To to stay with Jesus or to flee from him. That's the crisis they were going to face. Now I want you to see the disciples failed to watch and pray and they failed in their crisis. The point I want to get across to us this morning, friends, is that we would just simply receive this understanding that often the battle is won or lost in prayer before the crisis ever comes. That's one of the fundamental principles of spiritual warfare, I believe. Is we, we think that the moment of crisis is the moment when the battle is won or lost. No. Oftentimes it's won or lost in prayer before the crisis time ever comes. If the disciples would have watched and prayed, well, who knows what would have happened? Maybe they would have received from God the resources of spiritual strength and courage they would have needed to stand beside Jesus as they should have, but they didn't. They fell into the temptation. Verse 39. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. You got the picture here, don't you? Jesus goes and he prays and he pours out his heart to God the Father. Lord, I don't know this cup. Is there any other way? I I shrink back from drinking this cup. I I don't want to be treated as if I were a guilty sinner and have all the wrath that those guilty sinners deserve poured out on me. Is there any other way? And in a moment of just release from that stroke, he comes and he checks on the disciples and they're sacked out. Guys, wake up, Simon, Peter, won't you get up? Now, if they're anything like us, oh, yeah, Jesus, no, just rest in my eyes. I'm fine. We're with you, Jesus. We'll pray now. Okay, yeah, fine, Jesus, we're with you now. Jesus goes, well, good, good. They're with me. They're going to pray with me. They're going to be with me. He goes off and he prays again. After who knows how long, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, we don't know. He comes back again, asleep again. Well, they wake up again because Jesus comes. But notice, it's very interesting. I find this line very, very engaging in verse 40, where it says, and they did not know what to answer him. You've been that awkwardly embarrassed before, haven't you? You've been that, uh, um, there's no excuse this time. Jesus, we'll stay awake, though. I'm sorry. Oh, we're so sorry, Lord. We fell asleep a second time. We're so sorry, Jesus says, okay, I'm going to go pray a third time. Verse 41, then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. I'm not very happy with the translation from the New King James Version. 
In my research on this passage, I would say that, that this makes Jesus sound a little too harsh when he says, are you still sleeping and resting? That's the kind of thing we would say to our kids to get them up out of bed in the morning. Hey, wake up, sleepyhead. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. And I take this from, from just sort of a, a detailed examination of the original language and the original words that Mark used when he wrote the gospel. The sense of this more seems to be that Jesus came and in a compassionate way said, you guys are still asleep, sleep on. You see, I think the third time that Jesus came back, he had resolved the struggle in his own heart and in his own mind. He was at a point of peace. He was at a place of rest. And he goes, well, guys, you know what? I'm at peace. You may as well sleep. Sleep. It's going to be a long day tomorrow, believe me. Sleep. It's such a tender picture to think of Jesus having come through the struggle, the struggle that his disciples should have been there helping him with, the struggle that they should have helped him with prayer and companionship through. It's such a tender picture to think of Jesus there looking over his disciples and just watching for them as they slept. <laughs> they should have been up watching with him, but instead they slept. Jesus watched over them and prayed for them. And then finally, he says, if you notice there right in the middle of verse 41, he says, it is enough. The hour has come. I think that he saw Judas coming with that detachment of soldiers, this small army of soldiers that Judas came with. There they are with their burning torches in the middle of the night, making a little procession. And Jesus could come in and now he's saying, wake up, guys, the hour's come. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Friends, you see, I really want you to grab onto this. That the disciples woke up in this hasty sense. And here they are embarrassed all over again that they didn't watch and pray with Jesus. That they weren't there to minister to him in prayer and companionship at the critical moment. But I want you to see too is the overwhelming love that Jesus has for them. You've been spiritually asleep at times, haven't you? I know I have. You've let Jesus down in some way when he's asked you to do something. I know that I have. And sometimes I think Satan whispers in my ears harsh, condemning words. And he tries to tell me that that's what Jesus is saying to me. Friends, no. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Now, he may correct us. He may tell us we're wrong. But it never has that flavor of harsh condemnation. You know, when you hear that condemning voice, here's a great way to judge it. If it's pushing you away from God making you feel so embarrassed and ashamed that you don't even want to go to God, you know it's from the devil. But if it makes you want to run to Jesus and say, oh Lord, I'm so ashamed, I come to you, please forgive me, then you know it's the Lord convicting you and drawing you to him. Such a note of love and compassion from the Lord. And these poor disciples, they didn't understand that the battle is won or lost before the crisis, and so they didn't watch and pray with Jesus. And now we're going to see them fail in the place well, they, they, where they should have stood. Look at it here now, beginning at verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. 
Then they laid their swords on him and took him. Isn't that terrible? Not just that Jesus was betrayed. Not just that Jesus was betrayed by a man that he showed so much love to. Not just that he was betrayed by a man that he had led and loved and ministered to for three years. Not just that Jesus was betrayed by all of that, but that he was betrayed with a kiss. With a sign of affection and friendship. That very mark of friendship and affection was the kiss that betrayed Jesus into the hands of an arresting army. And as far as the chief priests and the scribes were concerned, this was perfect. Now they can arrest Jesus without making a big scene. Now they can do it on the sly and have a hurry-up trial and condemn him and crucify him before the crowds get a hold of the understanding of what's happening. So Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, coming with that small army that arrested Jesus. There he was. Look what Jesus says in in response here, beginning at verse 47. And one of those who, who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. You know, we, we read that and we almost want to applaud. Yeah, somebody's sticking up for Jesus. Yeah, way to go. Isn't this interesting, though? Jesus never asked any of his disciples to do this. What he asked them to do was to watch and pray. Have you found yourself in this place? I know I have. I won't do what Jesus wants me to do, what he asks me to do, but I want to do something else that he never asked me to do, and I just end up making a big mess of it. That's what this disciple did. Well, I I won't watch and pray, but what I'll do is I'll take out a sword and I'll defend Jesus, and he makes a violent swipe at somebody, and if you notice here, verse 47, he cut off his ear. Now, you might want to think that that was precision swordsmanship. I think it was a wild, half-eye-closed, glancing blow that cut off the servant's ear. What's interesting about it, that's not going to accomplish a whole lot, right? You're not going to defeat an army by cutting off ears. No, what you want to do is slice off somebody's head. But probably the, the, the swordsman was so inaccurate, so inexperienced that the most he could come up with was an ear. Now think about how embarrassing that must have been. There he is with the sword. The ear drops to the ground. Everybody's looking around going, what next? Now who was the swordsman? It doesn't tell us here in the Gospel of Mark, does it? But from the Gospel of John, we know exactly who it was. You see, the Gospel of John tells us in chapter 18, I believe, that that swordsman was Peter, Peter himself. I don't know about you, but I find this a little bit amusing. There seems to be the hints, and I'm not going to say it's any more than hints. There seems to me to be the hints of a rivalry between John and Peter in the Gospels. Just just little hints. For example, in the Gospel of John, it says that the two disciples, John and Peter, took off on the morning they discovered that Jesus was raised from the dead, They ran to the tomb. Now, other Gospels tell us that they both ran to the tomb. But the Gospel of John tells us that John beat him. I think just John wanted everybody to know that. That he outran Peter, and and that he got there first. There's just other little subtle references in the Gospel that make me believe there's a little bit of a rivalry, a little friendly rivalry between John and Peter. Now, the Gospel of Mark is believed by many, many scholars, and I would agree with these men, 
By many, many scholars, the Gospel of Mark is believed to be really Peter's gospel, that Peter was the main source, the main inspiration for it. And I believe, so. I think that, that Mark got most of the information for his gospel by interviewing Peter. So it's interesting that in Peter's gospel, there's no mention of the name of who the swordsman is. I can almost imagine Mark saying, Peter, wasn't that you? He goes, well, look, we don't need to put that in. Let's move on. But John, in his gospel, lets everybody know it was Peter who cut the guy's ear off. But you know, John also tells us what Jesus did to fix it. Jesus picked up the ear of this high priest servant, he went over, and he healed it. Now, you know what was so gracious about that that Jesus did? Was it preserved Peter from a lot worse trouble. Friends, if Jesus wouldn't have done that, there probably would have been four crosses on Calvary, not three. Uh, that's a pretty serious crime to strike off somebody's ear in an arresting army, because especially everybody knows that it's attempted murder. It's not an attempted ear piercing. <laughs> so you see, the point of it is, is that Jesus said, I'm going to let you have a free pass on this one, Peter. I'm going to heal it and cover up the evidence here. Now when anybody says, well, didn't he cut off the high servant's ear? What cut? There's no cut there. It's all healed up. So Jesus ministered to Peter in this situation. Look at what Jesus says in verse 48. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not take me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. He said, why now? He knew why. He knew they did it on the sly so that the crowds wouldn't get excited and they'd take him away now at the hand of the betrayer. Look at it there in verse 50. It's, it's tragic. Then they all forsook him and fled. It shouldn't be like that, people. Jesus poured his life into these men for three years, and he gave them everything that he had. And it's true that Judas betrayed him, but they all forsook him. They all ran away like scared rabbits, when at least one or two of them should have stood beside him and said, you take him, you take me with him. I'm sticking with this man. He's given me so much. He's spoken to me the words of eternal life. I am not leaving this man's side. And whatever you're going to do to him, you may as well do it to me too. Not a one of them said it. You know, this speaks to me of two things. First of all, it makes me really understand that whenever I feel betrayed or forsaken, I know that my Lord felt it far worse. I look at any time in my life where I felt like that, and it's nothing compared to this that Jesus went through. Nothing. Say, oh, Jesus, you know what I'm going through. But it also makes me say, oh, Lord, I I I don't want the people I know to feel that. But when, when, when I see others in that place, I want to, with, with prayer and companionship, I want to stand beside them. I want to be there for them, Lord, like your disciples should have been there for you. Look at the last couple verses here, verse 51 and 52. This shows you how completely Jesus was forsaken. It says, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now almost from the the, the earliest times of Christian understanding and commentary on the Gospel of Mark, people have said that this man was Mark himself. And it's sort of an obscure reference of Mark saying, I was there. 
And I can sort of picture it this way. You know, many people believe that Jesus had the Last Supper in the upper room, and the upper room was actually at the house where Mark lived. His parents owned the house. We know this because later on in the book of Acts, we know that the disciples met at the house of Mark's mother. So it may very well be that Jesus had the Last Supper at the home where Mark lived, at the home that his parents owned. I can just see Mark there as a young man. Maybe he's 12, 13, 14. Maybe he's helping with the arrangements for the Last Supper, making sure that they have plenty to drink and eat and that they're there together and they're all there. And then there at the Last Supper, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and in the middle of their time together, Judas leaves. And what does Judas leave to do? To go get the arresting army that's going to get Jesus. Now, I'm going to speculate a bit here, so follow along. And if you can receive it, receive it. If not, well, you understand that I'm just sort of painting a picture here. Well, I believe that when Judas got the arresting army, where did he take it? Well, he took it back to the house where they were all having the Last Supper. He figured they'd still be there. But Jesus had left. He and his disciples had gone and walked across the city of Jerusalem and across the Kidron Valley and up to the, the Mount of Olives. There at the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus had time to talk to his disciples and pray and and get things settled in his own heart and in his own mind. And then suddenly at the house where Mark lived, there's a knock on the door and they open the door and there's Judas and an arresting army and a torch-lit parade through the streets of Jerusalem. And Mark is peering across the corner there as his parents talk to the men at the door and they explain, Jesus isn't here. And Mark says, good heavens, they've come for Jesus. And he throws on a, a garment and people knew that Jesus liked to go to the Garden of Gethsemane oftentimes. And so Mark says, I've got to warn Jesus. And so this young man runs across town to tell Jesus that Judas and an arresting army are along the way. And he goes as quick as he can, but he's only a few steps ahead of the army. And by the time he comes to tell Jesus, either it's too late or Jesus, he just knows it's happening anyway, and so it doesn't matter. And there at that critical time, John Mark is there. And one of the men, perhaps they see Mark, and they say, hey, didn't we see you at the house where we came to get Jesus first? Why are you here? And they grab a hold of him. Being the slippery young man he is, he breaks away and he starts running. It doesn't even matter to him that he left his clothes in the man's hand. All he is is happy to get away. And he runs away home, probably with tears streaming down his face, not just because he was so scared from the situation, but because he forsook Jesus too. See, my friends, Jesus was utterly alone because what he had to accomplish to win our salvation was something that only he could do. Mark couldn't do it. Peter couldn't do it. John couldn't do it. Only the Son of God could do it. My real question for you this morning is, will you receive it? Will you receive what Jesus accomplished by his struggle in the garden? The redemption, the salvation that we need. Will you receive that? If you don't, then there's a sense that as far as what is your concern, what he did in the garden of Gethsemane, he did it in vain. He may as well not have done it. Because it doesn't really matter to you. Don't you see Jesus standing before you now saying, I want you to receive it. But you should also receive the understanding this morning that that the battle is won or lost before the crisis comes. Can you grab onto that? Because this week you're probably going to face some kind of crisis. 
some kind of difficulty, you probably will. You know, right now, you can spend some time in prayer and seeking God and put yourself on a firm foundation to succeed in the crisis that you'll face later on this week. You don't even know it's coming, but God knows. And that's why he brought you here this morning so you could hear this message and prepare your heart now. So why don't we do that? Let's spend some time talking to God. We'll do it in song as we worship him together. But friends, you can also do it just as you pray. At the back of the room is going to be a prayer team and you can go and pray with them. Why don't we spend just a few moments watching and praying together, preparing our hearts for what God wants to do in our life. Let's pray. As I pray, the worship team's going to come on up and we're going to worship the Lord for a few moments. Father, we want to stand with Jesus right now and watch and pray. We want to receive what Jesus did, not just on the cross, but also in the Garden of Gethsemane. We want to receive it right now, Lord. Let us receive it and make that the foundation for everything we are, everything we do before you. Receive the praise and the honor that we return to you right now in Jesus' name.